passage today comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 24 to 28. You are to allow the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no family redeemer, but he prospers and obtains enough to redeem his land, he may calculate the years since its sale, repay the balance to the man he sold it to, and return to his property. But if he cannot obtain enough to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. It is to be released at the Jubilee so that he may return to his property. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we gather today and we are so grateful for this space that we have. Lord, we lift up those who are unable to be with us. And Lord, we pray that you will comfort those who are sick and those who are missing loved ones today. We thank you for your guiding and loving your people so well. We are continually humbled by your love and justice for your people. Lord, please open our hearts to hear your words and help us to live our lives in such a way that others see our devotion to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Teresa. Good morning. Great to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open uh, to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be continuing the story of Ruth and continuing the series, really, through Judges, which is that God is the hero of the story. Have you ever had the opportunity in your life to have a secret admirer? I have to admit, when I was younger, I always wanted one. Unless that person turned out to be a stalker, then not so much. But would it be great to have someone who was unknown to you? The very idea that they were leaving you little gifts like a breadcrumb trail all the way, hopefully, so that you come to the point where you recognize who they are, you discover their identity, and you reciprocate their affection. The very idea of it can seem so romantic, and it can just ignite a kind of uh, expectation in the heart, a sort of electric anticipation in the heart. And I, I kind of feel like, to be honest with you, that's often how I feel with God. I often do feel with the Lord that um, receiving His gifts and the resources that He supplies, I often do not acknowledge the air that I breathe or the sun that shines on me or the, or the daily resources that are available to me. We often can only see what God has done or is doing for us in the rearview mirror, in retrospect. And we may be even tempted at times to think that the resource itself is the source of our blessing, but it's not. In the end, we discover that every good and perfect gift comes to us, not by chance, but from the Father of heavenly lights. And Ruth chapter 2 is that kind of story. In the sunlit fields of Bethlehem, the narrative of Ruth takes an intriguing turn. As the foreigner Ruth takes center stage against the backdrop of busy reapers and golden stalks of wheat, a chance encounter with a man named Boaz will change their lives forever. It is a story about a mysterious God who, behind the scenes, is providing for Ruth through gracious provision, the gracious provision of a nobleman. Now, last week we said that God is present in both times of abundance and times of scarcity, whether you're going through a time of prosperity or abundance or time of, you, where you, of lack, 
of scarcity, God is present in the midst of that. Now, chapter one was definitely a story about scarcity. It was definitely a story about suffering, about being without. Chapter two is going to be about God being present in the abundance, God being present to provide more than Naomi's family actually needs. So we pick up the story. If you have your Bible, please, on Sunday mornings, if you, if you do attend church here regularly, I want to encourage all of you, bring a Bible. You need a Bible in this church, and you need a pen to take some notes and take some insights home. We're going to start in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Now, full stop. The fact that it says that he was a prominent man and a man of character. Now, in the Hebrew, it says he was known in the gate. And that just is an idiom. That's their way of saying this is a nobleman. We're talking about a man of means here. We're talking about a man who owns land. We're talking about a guy who is well-respected within this community. Verse 2 says, with Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain from someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Now, it says she happened to be in that field Guaranteed, God is, you and I already know, God is orchestrating this story. She didn't just happen to be there. But from her perspective, she is. This is a coincidence. And you need to understand that what they are practicing here is what we read at the top of the sermon, Leviticus 25. It is allowing um, people to come in and glean from the land and to, and to be redeemed that way. And so this is a Judaic practice. Understand, this is unique to Judaism. Because the surrounding Canaanite countries, they also left a portion of their harvest fields. Uh, They also left a portion of their harvest fields, but they didn't leave them for the poor, the destitute, or the sojourner. They left them for the fertility gods, which, of course, is a waste of resources because we know there are no gods. There are no fertility gods. And so instead of leaving them for the people made in God's image, they left them for these false gods. And so here we have clearly a Jewish practice. Verse 4, later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? Now, that's a very interesting question because in English, it just means, like, who is she married to? But the Hebrew, the ancient reader would see the significance of this. They would see she is either, she belongs to someone. Because in the ancient world, children and women belonged to men, uh, or they were widows, and they were wards of the state, right? So uh, she belongs to somebody. She is either like one of his servants in the field, one of his female servants, or she's married, and he wants to know this. And the very idea that he's asking, uh, who does that woman belong to, That, that gives us a hint here that he's already done his homework. He's actually there looking for her. We'll see that. Um, verse 6, it says, the servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. So obviously, Boaz already knows the story. Her story has, is getting around. Everyone in town has heard what has happened here. And she asked me, 
Will you let me gather uh, uh, fallen grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet uh, since early morning, except that she rested a little bit in the shelter. And then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another man's field. And don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. Uh, See which field they are harvesting and then follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. When did he have an opportunity to warn all the men not to touch her? Yeah, he's done his homework. He's heard the story. He wants to come down there and meet this Naomi to see if there are any sparks, right? Any holy anointed sparks. And so she, verse 10, she fell face down. She bowed to the ground and said to them, said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you'd notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people who, who didn't previously know. He says, I just had to meet this woman. And may the Lord reward you for what you have done and may, may you receive a full reward from the Lord our God under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now she says, why is it that you've taken notice of me? I'm a foreigner. That Hebrew word for foreigner means one who looks different. She's the other. She's from Edom. Her skin is likely darker. She's likely darker complected. Uh, She speaks with a a thick Edomite accent. So she sticks out like a sore thumb among all these Hebrew girls. Why would this prominent noble man come and pay attention to me, an outsider, a foreigner? And this is an act of just pure grace, pure compassion. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and, and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather the grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her uh, even gather grain among the bundles. And don't humiliate her. Don't do anything to embarrass her. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered and it was about 26 quarts of barley. Now, scholars have estimated this is about 8 to 10 months' worth of food. I mean, this would supply her enough grain or enough barley for 8 to 10 months of meals. So this is an enormously, this is very magnanimous of Boaz to allow her to do that. But look at the, bot- the back of the story here. She goes home. She goes home to her mother-in-law to tell her about all that has happened. Verse 19, her mother-in-law, that is Naomi, said to her, where did you go gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. See that prying mother-in-law nosing up in people's business? And she's like, "I dish all the dirt. I want to hear about what happened today. And so then Ruth just tells her, this is what happened to me. She recalls the whole story. Listen, I I found myself in this field. This man named Boaz was very generous to me. And this is what she says. This man is a close relative, Naomi says. He is one of our family redeemers. Now, we read that in Leviticus 25. He is one of the kinsmen redeemers who can redeem 
this family member's land and redeem them from their poverty. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's family, female servants, and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we want to make a few observations from the story today. And I think what we really draw from the story, the main idea that we get from it, is that we are to remain faithful to God in a world that rejects the truth. The whole story in chapter 2 reveals that these people are attempting, that is Naomi's family, which includes uh, Boaz, they are attempting to be faithful to the God of Israel when all the rest of the 12 tribes are not. So here in Bethlehem, we have one family who's attempting to be faithful to Torah covenant. And how do we know this? Well, we see several multiple subtle hints or clues in the text. The practice of allowing the poor and destitute and foreigners to glean leftovers from the harvest is unique to Judaism, as we noted. The ethic of protecting young women from harm is also a Judeo ethic. The practice of allowing foreigners to integrate into Jewish society that was provided by Moses. Moses said, listen, if the sojourner comes among you, you are to welcome them, and they are to be loyal to the God of Israel, to the one true God. And we see that is, that is what is going on here with Ruth. They use God's names, names that are kind of exclusive to God, the name Yahweh, Adonai, Shaddai, in chapters 1 and 2, we see those names repeated uh, variously. And so they are not calling on the gods of other cultures. They're calling on the God of, of Israel. And, of course, we see the expectation that a kinsman will redeem the relative's family. This practice is deeply rooted in Moses' Torah, as we noted. So in the midst of a world that is becoming increasingly godless and unfaithful to the word, to the covenant, one family is attempting to be faithful. And so what does faithfulness look like for us? What does it look like for us as Christians in dark times? I think, firstly, faithfulness, looks, faithfulness to God looks like, number one, exclusive devotion to the one true God. So you notice, they're not calling on other gods. They don't have Asherah poles to uh, Baal or these other false gods, fertility gods, in their backyards, the way Gideon's father had. They are different. And they have taken Moses' command very seriously. It is God's command from the Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20. What is the first command? You shall have no other gods but me. No gods besides me. That's the first command. The psalmist sang in Psalm 62, I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him and no other. My soul is at rest in God alone, and I have no salvation outside of Him. But Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters since he, uh, either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve, for example, Jesus says, God and money. If you try to serve two different gods, the competing interests and aims of those gods will pull you apart because they have competing values and competing interests. 
You can't serve two gods. And so I'm struck by the example here of their allegiance to the God of Israel in Ruth chapter 2. Everyone seems to be committed to him, and so should we be. Number two, faithfulness looks like confidence in God's promises. Faithfulness to God looks like confidence in his promises. Now, they are being faithful to the God of Israel, but they don't even realize that the God of Israel is being faithful to them. He is a God, he is a faithful, just God. He has made promises to Abraham, promises to Moses, promises to their children, and God is going to carry out those promises. And they don't realize that behind the scenes, God is working because God has promised something to this nation. God has made certain promises to us as well. He is trustworthy. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you is faithful to do what? To bring it to its completion. To complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God is faithful to complete you. God is faithful to finish the work that he begun, he has begun in you. Look at how put this is a really curious passage. I want to show it to you. It's in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Peter says this. He says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 4. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of its evil desire. Look at what he says. Look very close at what he says in that passage. What does he say? He says his divine power, God's divine power, which is the person of the Holy Spirit, has invaded our lives with transforming presence. And what does he do? God, by his Holy Spirit, transforms us into the image and the likeness of Jesus through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of Jesus. And it is through the great and precious promises that you and I come to partake of divine life. Now, some people teach some really weird things based on this passage. One of the doctrines that they teach is what's called apotheosis. Have you heard of this? Apotheosis, it's just the doctrine that uh, based on this passage, that human beings eventually become exalted as gods. And that's a false doctrine. This passage does not teach that. But this passage also does not teach, the Bible also does not teach that we are just a bunch of fleshly, wormy worms. The Bible says that a human being is an image bearer, a regal son or a daughter of God, a regal image bearer of God. And even though we have fallen into sin and in our fallen state, we still bear the image of Almighty God. And what Peter is saying in this passage, he's not teaching apotheosis, he's teaching something like theosis, which is just the idea that as image bearers in Christ, God is going to fully realize that his image in us. God is going to complete that image in us, and he does it as we partake of the life that is in the triune God alone. There is only life in Jesus. There isn't life in bad religion. There isn't life in uh, works uh, religion. There isn't life in false beliefs. There isn't life in pleasure-seeking or hedonism. There is only life in Jesus. There isn't even life in Bible study. 
Jesus told the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And they're the scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me to have life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you get life from me. And so understand that God has made very great and precious promises to us just like he did to Israel. And what he has promised us is that we are going to be changed. We're going to be changed and transformed onto resurrection glory, made in the image of his one and only son. I don't know about you, I just think that's good news. I think that's just fantastic news. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. The corruptible is going to be clothed in incorruptibility. Can you imagine your body, your life being incorruptible? No disease, no pain, no temptation, not susceptible to temptation. He says the mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Right now, you don't have immortality. You have mortality. Apart from Christ, you're going to die, and brother, you're going to stay dead. But in Christ, you're going to rise, and you'll never die again because you couldn't die. God is going to replace our mortality with immortality. I'm sure you've all heard this new cultural mantra. It's the new mantra of our culture for the next 15 minutes, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm poking fun. But it's the mantra, love is love. Have you heard this? Oh, man. Every time you turn on the tube, the, the, the tick, the tick, what is it? The tick tocker, <laughs> the tweeter, the YouTube. Everybody's talking about love is love. Love is love. And, and what the phrase means, I think what they mean by this is, listen, love is not context dependent. It doesn't matter what context I'm in. It doesn't matter what relationship with, the, uh, with another person that I'm in. Love is just love. And of course that's true if you define love correctly. But if you misdefine love, it's not true. Listen, the Bible says that God is love. Who is love? Who is the very epitome, the very definition of love? It is God. And what do we know about God? God is compassionate. He is his loving kindness. He, He is patient. And he is caring. And he is merciful. And he is gracious and giving. He's a generous God. We learned that in this very passage. But we also learned that God is a judge. He's the judge of everyone's eternal destiny. God is wrathful against sin. He hates sin and he hates you in your sin. He hates what your sin has done to you. God is also a righteous, holy God. And listen, if you're going to try to define love and you're not going to define it as God, you got the wrong definition of love. Why is this important? What does this have to do with our point? Because we are being conformed into the image of God's one and only Son, Jesus. And it is in Him and through Him that we become communers with, partakers of the divine life that is only in God, in the triune God. And that is how God is transforming us. That is how he is making us something new. And so if you're going to be formed into the image of the culture, that's your God. Or you're going to be formed into the image of the one and only Son of God. Understand, we need God more than we need anything. More than anything in God's creation, I need God. And that's the great and precious promise. I need God in the midst of an argument with my spouse. Very rare, but it happens. I need God when my teenagers are being 
teenagers. I need God when there is an economic downturn and in times of abundance at work and on sabbatical. The stuff I need most in life is not the stuff. It's the God who gives the stuff. And what Ruth needs, listen, she needs the wheat. She needs the barley. And those things have been provided by the God who has sown them with the hand of providence in rows for her to collect. Praise the Lord. He does the same thing for us. But listen, what she needs more than she needs anything else is the God in whose story she is right in the middle of. She doesn't even know it. (laughs) She doesn't even know it. What a great story. Where are we? Number three. Wise stewardship of God's resources. So faithfulness also looks like wise stewardship of God's resources. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 45. Over in Luke 19, he says, well done. He rewards his faithful servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little, and now I'm going to entrust you with much, 10 times as much, tenfold. So what are we learning here is that faithfulness looks like wise, compassionate, and generous stewardship of God's resources. I'll say it again. Faithfulness to God looks like the wise, compassionate, and generous stewardship of the resources that God has brought us. I am struck by Boaz's redeeming generosity. Write that, write that down. That's so cool. I am struck by his redeeming generosity. Why? Because that is a picture of our God. That is a picture of the God that we serve, who is generous to us to a fault, who gives more than we can ask, think, or imagine. And this God does it to redeem us in our sin. While we were sinners, the Bible says, Romans chapter 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the redeeming generosity of a God who loves us beyond measure. Praise the Lord. And Boaz is such a beautiful picture of this. His magnanimity, right, just his incredible generosity is to redeem the poverty of this woman, and it's a beautiful picture of how God redeems us from the impoverished sinful life, from the sinful life that is darkened in its mind and futile in its thinking. Jesus said this, freely you receive, so freely give. The wise stewardship of resources means we invest in those ventures that bless the kingdom of God, that are gospel-centered and gospel-focused. We give toward those causes that further the good news being spread in the world for Jesus. And we also reflect the heart of a generous God who graciously supplies us with all things as a church when we meet the needs of people who, who are in need in our midst. Faithfulness looks like Boaz's redeeming generosity. Number four, prioritizing the teaching of the word. Faithfulness looks like the prioritization of the teaching of the Word. This is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, uh, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does Paul know at the end of his life when he writes this last letter? What does he know? He's going to die. Jesus hasn't come back. To his surprise, Jesus has not returned, and what does he have to do? He and the apostles have to entrust their teachings to trustworthy men so those trustworthy men can pass them on to the next generation. That's how the Christian faith got out of the first century. That's why we're sitting here today, because someone did this. And I can't help but notice in the story in Ruth chapter 2, there's some biblically literate folks here. Boaz, Naomi, they know their faith. 
Torah law is just, is the fabric of the passage. It's just fantastic. And, and we are challenged with the same things, folks. We are challenged with the same things. Parents, are you taking the time to have gospel conversations with your kids? And ever since my kids were little, I would interrupt some conversation we would have, my radar would be up, and I'd be looking for some opportunity to, to interject the gospel or to bring it back to biblical values, to say, hey, do you think the, the way that person treated you at school, do you think that's, what do you think is wrong with that? And bring them back to Jesus' teaching, right? So try to raise our kids in that by having conversation, gospel-centered conversations with them. Church, are we prioritizing the gospel as central to all that we do? Every lesson, every activity, every worship gathering, every worship song, every sermon. Are we, are we orienting everything toward an understanding for the next generation to raise them up in the gospel? Faithfulness looks like a commitment to train and raise up the next generation to teach them the truth and instruct them in the doctrines, the teachings, and the values of the Bible. Number five. This one is a bonus. It's not in Ruth 2. Resolving to finish the race marked out for us. So faithfulness looks like a resolute commitment, a resolute, a resolve to finish the race that God has plotted out for our lives. John the Apostle recorded Jesus' message to the churches. He says, be faithful to the point of death and I'll give you the crown of life. What is Jesus' expectation? You've lived for me, now if you have to die for me, you must. I'll see you soon, right? So the question for us today is, are you a finisher? Will there be anything that causes you to stumble and reject so great a salvation in Christ? Here's what the writer of Hebrews said about that. I want to show this to you, put it up on the screen. He says, therefore, since we have uh, we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside. That phrase in Greek means to drop or let go of. Let it go. Lay it aside. Every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles or ensnares us, besets us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because he's the example. Look at his example. For the joy that I lay before him, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our example. Hang in there. Finish the race. That's what faithfulness looks like. And then rid your life. Let everything that hinders you from running your best race for Christ to drop off and out of your life. I'll tell you a final story. Years ago, I used to read this publication called a Chuck Shepard's News of the Weird. This was the old internet, right? <laughs> this was like 2001 internet. And now, you could just see it on the TikToker, or you can see these kind of stories on the tweets, tweets and stuff, and the YouTubes, and uh, you can see it on those social media, right? But back then, you sort of had to look up a website for weird news, and this guy would scour papers for weird stories, and then just post them on his website. One of those weird stories was of a woman who came into a small town. She came into an old, this was an old grocery store. Now, for those of you who are young, grocery stores used to be a little smaller, and in towns they were much smaller, and they used to have, where the sliding doors were in the front, these huge, remember when they had these huge metal entryways, like these 
really loud metal entryways that you had to clop across when you came in. And so she comes in and she makes a beeline for the frozen food department. Now, the manager immediately, who's up in his booth, he sees her on the view screen and he sees that she looks a little fishy. She is wearing a heavy trench coat. She is walking very fast to the aisle uh, where the frozen meats are. She reaches in, she pulls back her trench coat, she reaches in and she grabs a ham, a frozen ham. This is true. She takes the frozen ham, sticks it between her knees, closes her trench coat, and then begins to waddle toward the front door very slowly, very carefully, very suspiciously. Well, the manager comes out of his booth, and he signals to a couple of other workers there, a couple of other employees. He's like, get over here. And they're going to catch her now at the front door. And so, but he's trying to be very nonchalant, so she doesn't notice that he's noticed her, but then she sees that he noticed her, and so she starts waddling faster. She gets right over this metal floor, right at the entryway, and the ham wiggles out, dislodges, and hits that metal floor, clang, everyone in that store turned and made eye contact with her. And without skipping a beat, she said, hey! Which one of y'all threw that ham at me? And she took off running. <laughs> I didn't make the story up. I read it on Chuck Shepherd's News of the Weird. And so the question today is, what is keeping you from running your best race? What, what is holding you back? What is hindering you? And the writer of Hebrews would say, drop the ham. Just whatever is holding you up, whatever is making you hobble in the Christian life, let it go. Let it fall by its side and run, take off like a lightning streak and run your best life for Christ. It could be a sinful habit. It could be an idol that you just won't let go of. No one knows you have it, but you won't let it go and leave it in the past. It could be a relationship that you just can't say no to. And whatever is stopping you from running your best race in Christ, whatever the sin is that it so easily entangles, let it drop off. Get rid of it. And finish the race because that's what faithfulness looks like in the Christian life. And so we are surprised this morning to learn that in the midst of a nation, 12 tribes scattered all over Israel who are unfaithful to God, here is a family who is attempting to be faithful to the Lord. And this shows up, again, to recap, in their exclusive devotion to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Their confidence in God's promises that he's going to be faithful to them as a nation. Their wise and generous stewardship of God's resources and prioritizing the teaching of the covenant to the next generation. Will you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Bow your head. Close your eyes, and let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful today for your magnanimous, redeeming generosity that you sent your son, your own son, to come and live a sinless life and, and to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to you. And we are here reminded today, Lord, of the life that is only found in the triune God. We partake of the life that is only in you as you transform us from one glory to the next. And we are stunned to learn that while we were sinners, you died for us on a cross. 
taking our shame and our sin and our punishment and nailing it to the tree. And to that, Lord, we say, praise the Lord. Praise your name. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, can I challenge you? Will you consider the cross today? Will you consider the cross of Jesus? You're lost in your sin and you know it. You know there's no panacea. Nothing is going to cure you except being washed clean by the blood of Jesus because of what he has done for you on the cross. Will you just accept it? Will you receive it? Will you confess your belief in it? If you're a believer here and, and you say, listen, I haven't done, I haven't been living according to this faith. I haven't had trusted in the promises of God. At times I doubt that God is going to complete in me the, the good work that he, he began. Would you just confess that to the Lord right now? Just confess all that you are. Father, we confess our lack of faith at times, our lack of faithfulness. We confess, Lord, when we've been apathetic and lethargic about our faith, God, and we just turn our hearts over to you. And we praise you for your generosity. We, we confess that we have, when we have been thankless for all the things that you provided for us, we confess that as well. And all this we say in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.